Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my colleague, John Easton. Adam Belmar is our producer. We have special guest in the studio, Congressman Jeff Denham. Congressman Denham represents California's 10th District. When he was 17, he enlisted in the United States Air Force, where he was on active and reserve duty for 16 years. He served with distinction in Operation Desert Storm and Operation Restore Hope, and was honored with the California National Guard's highest award, the Order of California. When he left active duty, he ran a small business and eventually ran for the State Assembly. He was first elected to Congress in the historic class of 2010, sits on the Agriculture Committee, the Natural Resources Committee, and the Transportation Committee, where he serves as chairman of the Railroad Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Subcommittee. That is a lot to say. <laughs> Congressman, Congressman Denham, welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast. We're really happy to have you here. So let's get to the fear theories. This is the Fury Theory Podcast, after all. Uh, theory one, Nixon goes to China. It was said that only Nixon, because of his anti-communist credentials, could normalize relations with China. My theory, only Donald Trump, because of his anti-illegal immigration credentials, can get an immigration deal through Congress. Congressman Denham, you've been working on immigration reform for at least eight years, maybe longer. Uh, you have been that you've been in the House. You've fought to give Dreamers uh, legal status. You have pushed for tougher border security, and you have actively sought to fix our broken immigration system. Uh, you have a bipartisan piece of legislation that you have, I think, equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats on that I think will serve as a cornerstone of any immigration reform p- uh, package. Uh, could you tell us about that bill and what do you think is going to happen to it? Sure. You know, our immigration system has been broken for decades now. Uh, we owe it to the American people to make sure that they've got a guarantee that we know who's coming across uh, our borders. Uh, so we've got to have strong border security. Uh, we also have to address internal security and the folks that are here in our communities today. And uh, the biggest part of that is the Dreamers, uh, the kids that were brought here by their parents. Um, they know of no other home. They've gone to school with our kids. They've graduated from our high schools. And now the real question is, does the American public think that they should have a job? Uh, do they think that they should be able to go to school? Should you be able to list in the military? Or um, should there be some type of penalty or criminal action that's done? Um, we have never in this country penalized uh, kids for the deeds of their parents. Uh, so in this case, you know, we're going to have a full debate on this. Uh, but I expect to hear from everybody on both, both sides of the aisle what is your solution to this? Um, and if your solution is uh, um, to send these kids somewhere, where is that you're going to send them to if this is the only home that they know? So we have a, a bipartisan piece of legislation, the USA Act, uh, which addresses uh, border security, both physical uh, physical barrier as well as uh, making sure we've got the technology barrier as well. You know, we can, as I've seen over uh, overseas serving in the military, uh, and most recently in Afghanistan we saw – um, everything from drone technology to uh, balloons and surveillance equipment. If we know who's going across those borders to keep our military safe, then we ought to know who's coming across our borders. So you can do both a technology as well as a physical barrier along our southern border. But we've got to ultimately give the American public uh, assurance that uh, we can control our border, and we're going to do this uh, immigration reform one time and fix it. And so the USA Act is part of that. And if we've read over it's it's a it's a – Excellent balance, Bill. In 2006 and in 2013, both efforts at immigration reform uh, got 60 votes in the Senate and didn't even come up 
for a vote in the House of Representatives. Is it different this time? And what do you think the sweet spot is uh, with with the debate on immigration? Where, where do you think we can get to to get it over the over the over the top? I do think that it's different this time. Uh, you know, part of the challenge with immigration is uh, there normally never is a deadline. You know, Congress operates on deadlines. There's always some kind of fiscal cliff or um, something that uh, you've got to reauthorize, otherwise right. funding runs out. Uh, but for immigration reform, there's never been a deadline like we have now today. The president set a March 5th deadline for uh, our dreamers, for, for those DACA recipients. Uh, under the previous administration's executive order. So it's really given us a, a deadline to, to get this done. I think we're going to get it done. I think it's going to be bipartisan, bicameral. Um, you know, we're working through some issues um, on both sides of the aisle to, to, to even address it from the extremes. Um, but we really have to get through a lot of the political rhetoric and really focus on the issues. You know, my Democrat colleagues um, originally started off saying they don't want any money spent on a wall or on border security. And I thought that was very disingenuous because in 2006, even Chuck Schumer yeah, uh, voted agree, for it. Yeah, right. and, and two years ago, we had uh, the Gang of Eight bill that had every single Democrat in the Senate, every single Democrat in the House supported it, and uh, several Republicans in the House uh, supported it as well. That had $42 billion for border security. Right. And the president's been asking for far less. So I think that there is some common ground here to find a real solution on uh, our DACA kids as well as Dreamers and border security. And hopefully we get some of the other reforms in there as well. There's a number of other immigration issues that uh, we can put in this. You know, the House has always said we don't, uh, we don't want to see a um, comprehensive bill. We want to do a step-by-step approach. But right. this might be an opportunity to see real comprehensive reform. Now, Congressman, um, my theory on this has always been that the broken immigration system actually depresses wages because if you have people who are being exploited by workers and don't have the proper protections, you have people not, not getting paid as much. And so this idea that a, a fixed broken, a fixed immigration system would somehow depress wages I think is ridiculous. Uh, to talk to your about about your own district and what your own kind of employers think about fixing this broken immigration, they need workers, don't they? Uh, absolutely. I mean, certainly uh, two different aspects. Is first of all, our dreamers, uh, most of which have jobs today, they've graduated from our high schools. Uh, so to do anything but fix us would actually be a, a drag on our economy. Would really right. have a big impact on our economy. Uh, but there are, are many different industries out there that uh, we have a migrant workforce. Um, that uh, takes jobs that nobody else would. Every industrialized nation has a migrant workforce. Canada has a guest worker program. We've always, uh, in the past, before uh, the Bracero program, uh, we've always had a guest worker program as well. Um, But the thing that we should fix in this process is not only having a guest worker program, but we ought to have Mm E-Verify. So any critic out there, anybody looking for a job, should be able to know uh, what jobs are available before um, somebody comes in as a guest to take take one of those jobs? But ultimately, if we're going to succeed uh, economically, if we're going to be competitive, we've got to make sure that we've got a low cost of food. We've got to have a low cost of, of housing. We've got to make sure that we can manage those things. Uh, but we ought to guarantee that we've got Americans that uh, can take those jobs first. And in a related issue, uh, you also are working on legislation called the Enlist Act, a really important piece of legislation. Can you just tell us briefly about that? Sure. This is something I, I started uh, back in 2010. Uh, I very strongly believe that uh, there's no greater act of patriotism than being ser- serving your country, wearing the cloth of this great nation. And uh, these dreamers uh, who are 
uh, American by every other aspect, ought to have that uh, opportunity to serve, um, to show their patriotism, to show that this is the, the country that uh, um, you know that they want to be a part of. Uh, show that you want to really be an American and love our flag. And so I started the Enlist Act. Um, it is uh, the most bipartisan uh, and has the most co-authors of any immigration bill that we have uh, in the House right now. Um, it's a very simple bill. It doesn't change UCMJ code. It just says that uh, our military would allow DREAMers to serve um, if they fulfill their contract, meaning if they serve honorably for four years uh, and fulfill that contract, then they would get uh, the quickest pathway to citizenship. It now has 218 uh, co-authors in the House. So, and it's in the Senate bills as well. I mean, each one of the Dreamer bills have this as part of their bill as well. So hopefully this will get passed. It will get a nice little legislative accomplishment under your belt, which is always nice. And when you go back home and say, hey, listen, I did this for my country, which is great. Um, Nancy Pelosi, eight and a half hours on the floor. Uh, I thought it was a very impressive performance by her. Uh, I thought the speaker spoke very well. I, I don't think I could stand up for eight hours. I mean, did you? were you on the floor watching any of that? I watched part of it, yeah. Uh, it was a long time to be out there. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm not sure how it had helped move the debate forward because you already have your bill. You already kind of agreed with a lot of things that she was saying that we need to take care of these dreamers. Uh, but I thought for her political base, it was pretty clever, don't you think? Yeah. I, I mean, it shows that uh, she's not giving up on the issue. I mean, we've got an important job that we've got to do today, and I am uh, just as committed as she is to finding a solution here. Uh, but we can't shut down the government or um, – hold back funding for our troops uh, in the process. And so I thought it was, uh, it was a great way to display um, how important this issue is, and we've got to find real resolution. But going eight and a half hours was impressive. Now, so that being said, she's, you know, I've heard that she's been, you know, sending or supporting a candidate in your district who is not very popular, angering people. <laughs> And she's kind of she's pretty close to you, isn't it? Her her physical district is yes. really close. Yeah, and she's kind of screwing around with uh, in the Democratic primary. Is that is that right? Sure, you would expe <laughs> you would expect that. Uh, I, I think I've got nine opponents right now, um, and she just recruited a a candidate once again from outside of our area from San Francisco. Very wealthy candidate. Um, no, this is uh, somebody who lives about an hour and a half south of oh, okay. of my okay. district All currently. Right. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Everybody's got a right to run. It's going to be an interesting so you primary. Have, you have but she's certainly upset a lot of the local right. uh, Democrats that uh, that either are running or supporting a candidate that's in this race already. But and I just read, I believe yesterday, National Journal, Josh Krausauer, said that he was talking about strength and weaknesses of various Republicans in races across the country. And he cited you as one who has excellent standing in in their district, and uh, she can do whatever she wants and try to play politics in your district, but you have, uh, obviously, very good political standing. Yes, we do very well. Uh, we work hard. We talk to people uh, continuously. We've got a ton of volunteers. We do this uh, year-round. Um, I take great pride in, in not only representing but communicating with people and, and really addressing their needs. You know, a, a lot can be said about uh, the votes that we take or the bills that we author, but I think the most important uh, job of, of any legislator is – uh, your customer service, uh, actually attending to the needs of, of people that uh, normally turn to you when it's the last place that they can get help, uh, whether you're a veteran looking for uh, veterans' benefits or uh, just somebody that uh, has uh, a Social Security check that's been delayed or lost. Now, you're, you're fluent in Spanish, is that right? Yes. And when you go back home, do you, when you're talking to your wife, do you talk in Spanish or are you talk in English or do you, do you, do you get uh, – 
when, when she's mad at you, does she? S- <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, yes. Um, we don't talk Spanish uh, in the home as much anymore. We used to talk it a lot when our kids were little because we, we didn't want them to know what we were talking about. Right. Um, but it, it was I learned Spanish because I wanted to be able to communicate with her grandmother who didn't speak any English, right. and I knew if I went over grandma, I was going to win over the rest of the family. So, <laughs> well played. But it, uh, it, it certainly has served me well in, in a very large Hispanic community. Uh, you know, I'm out there in, in all areas of, of the community, and, and it allows me to, to uh, communicate when I'm walking precincts and talking to people. And now your district, how does it break down? Uh, ethnically, is it like what are the, what are the forty six percent Hispanic? Oh, so that's so that's yeah. very helpful to speak Spanish. To, yeah, uh, that's that's awesome. Uh, all right, theory two: planes, trains, and automobiles. At long last, the president hopefully will send his infrastructure plan to Congress in the next week or so. The cost we hear is about one hundred one point five trillion dollars. A lot of money. It's not yet clear who's expected to pay that hefty price tag and how Congress will come up with the money. My theory, Democrats don't want to give the president another legislative victory, so don't expect to ha- this to happen this year. Don't we need to pour cold water on it? Congressman, you sit on the Transportation Committee. Uh, I know that you have a really great working relationship with the chairman, Bill Schuster, um, and I know that transportation is important for your district. Um, what do you think, and how is this all going to work out? I'm confident. I'm confident we're going to get an infrastructure package done. I think the big question, at least from a House perspective, is how big of an infrastructure package is it going to be? $1.5 trillion is huge. Now, part of that would be uh, user pay projects, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that we've got some type of financing that would allow uh, some type of user or public-private partnership where we bring in uh, private dollars, um, and then state and local match. So there's a variety of other funds that would be accompanying what's coming from the federal government, but the federal government has a big stake in this as well. And right now in the trust fund, we've got about $200 billion. Actually, in the bill that we're going to pass today, um, we plus that up even further. But we need to uh, still find more revenue to be able to do that match with uh, local and state governments so that we can get the biggest bang for our buck. Uh, We also need to reduce regulation in the process too. I mean, part of the big challenge in any infrastructure package is how quick can you build this? And oftentimes it takes 10 years to permit, let alone uh, to build the infrastructure. We've got to be able to permit them very quickly and get construction going so that we can build in two to four years. And my Democrat colleagues would take take aim at user pay projects saying we're going to put toll roads up everywhere. That's the last thing that we want to do. But in my area, you know, you've heard about this big water shortage that we have in California. Um, you know, the biggest user pay projects uh, in the country would be big water storage where I, as a rate payer, I pay for my water, our farms pay for their water, municipalities pay for that water, but you need an infrastructure bank to, uh, to borrow from with a low interest loan and then users pay that back. It would be the same thing uh, in concept as a toll road, except users are paying it as, as they're paying their water bills. Well, somebody's got to pay for it, right? Yeah, and we're prepared <laughs> to pay for it, but we've got to get it built. Right. And we ought to be able to do it economically and quickly. John. So I just on this topic, uh, the transportation and possible uh, infrastructure bill, how much are you hearing from your businesses, your constituents back home that this is a major priority for them? I know you've got the water, water storage issues in your district, but is this, is this a top three issue for your district? Definitely. I, I mean, the, by far the two biggest issues are immigration reform, uh, both from a community and uh, agriculture industry perspective. And then infrastructure, uh, both from water as well as goods movement, getting uh, 
products uh, through the valley and, and out to the ports uh, for exports and be able to transport them across the country. So everything from rail to uh, to fixing our highways and bridges, those are very important, as well as our inland waterways. So you you sit on the, the rail, you're the chairman of the rail subcommittee. What's been going on with our trains lately? I mean, you know, were you on that train to? Uh, to I was, there? yeah. And I mean, that, that's for, for a chairman. You're like, what the heck's going on here, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, not to be jokeful, but it's, it, it was scary. You go yeah. through a train wreck, uh, right. it, it certainly opens your eyes to uh, some of the challenges and some of the dangers and some of the safety uh, um, concerns that are out there. Um, I was able to uh, take a look at the train uh, and, and survey not only the damage to uh, the train, uh, but also to see what uh, what did go right, or what, what did um, happen in that scenario. And, you know, you can never predict somebody c- cutting across the tracks. Right. Um, but we do need to make sure that the gates work, that uh, the automatic braking works. And ultimately, we've got to get positive train control uh, in place. It's something you're going to hear more about in the coming weeks. Um, but we have the technology out there uh, that needs to be implemented across the country because we've had too many accidents um, that we've seen an incredible loss of life. So yeah, you had, you had something in uh, South Carolina. You had an Amtrak problem, and apparently that was just some guy who hit the wrong switch. Um, yes, and then in you Washington had, State. In Washington State, you mm-hmm. had a big, big problem. So hopefully, this this all gets worked out. I was talking to a friend of mine who works in the White House and in, in, involved in infrastructure, and his pitch was that Congress needs to get as much of these decisions back to the local level. That's all well and good, but you know, some states are donor states, and some states are donee states. Where is California? Are they a donor state? On We're a donor state, yeah. And so you know. From your perspective, you're giving a lot more money to the federal government than you're getting back for transportation. So you want to get a better split, right? For, for yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we have the ability to do that. When Anytime you're going to match uh, what the federal government has, I mean, normally uh, in most matches it's 20% federal, 80% local and state. And so we have the funding available. We want to utilize that so that we can create a, a fairer playing field across the country. But we also have some infrastructure that we haven't invested in as a state either. We've got roads and bridges that are falling apart in my hometown um you know we've got a a bridge that uh, is rated two out of a hundred when a bridge gets so bad that you don't allow school buses to go on that's not good and you're still having trucks go across it every day that's a that's a state of uh, disrepair that we need to focus on very quickly so a lot of challenges and you know when we're talking about goods movement you know you saw the panama canal expand you're seeing bigger ships going into to ports if our ports can't handle those uh, those big ships, they're going to go elsewhere. And so it, it's time for us to keep up with uh, many of the other big industrialized com- countries and have that goods movement that uh, will help us with exports. And that must be uh, consistent across the country in most districts. So uh, back to sort of John's question about, you know, almost the political will for an infrastructure bill. The president has put some capital behind it. I'm not sure how much more he's going to put behind it. But in the House of Representatives, between the caucuses, I mean, where are you feeling the political imperative? Do you feel like Democrats are saying, yeah, we got to get this. This could be an opportunity. we got to get this done. Or are they saying, to John's point, yeah, these guys don't need another victory. Uh, I mean, where, where do you feel the, the infrastructure po- politics? Yeah, I would hope that it wouldn't be that political. I would hope that uh – 
you know, every district across the country, there would be enough pressure to say, hey, fix our roads, that right. uh, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. You think. Um, <laughs> but th- there's going to be a number of reforms in this as well. Yeah. And uh, those reforms expedite projects. I, I know one of the uh, concerns is the environmental policy that we'd be changing. Um, and I think we're, uh, we're, we're looking at this from a, an efficiency standpoint while still trying to make sure we utilize the, the strongest environmental policy possible. So one of the, uh, the issues that we've brought up is for California, for example, has a uh, one um, CEQA, which is a state regulatory, which is much higher than our national NEPA. Right. Um, and we're just saying, look, we'll go through the environmental policy, but fast. let's do it once. Right, right. Not do it once, wait two years, do the next one, and wait again and delay these projects. Let's get them done. Let's expedite them. Let's get the water to people. Let's get the infrastructure and the jobs to people. And let's get the go- goods movement that will actually create uh, more more jobs throughout our, our country. So I don't know if you know this, uh, but Pharaoh Khufu uh, built the Great Pyramid in Giza – uh, in 20 years, it takes longer to get a, uh, a highway sometimes through all the permitting process the 20, 25 years. So if the pharaoh can do it, I think the American government could do it. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I mean, I don't know. That's, that's my, my own That's theory. your theory. <laughs> that's my theory. Uh, theory three, serve and protect. There are 24 million veterans in the United States and about 4 million veterans with service-related disabilities. There are about 40,000 veterans who are homeless on my theory, we have a special duty to protect those veterans who serve this nation with distinction and need our help, especially those who can't find a job or don't have a home. Uh, President Trump made this one of his most direct campaign promises. Uh, Congressman, you're a veteran. You formerly served on the Veterans Affairs Committee. I know that you care deeply for veterans. Um, how's President Trump and his how, – how's he doing on, on taking care of veterans? Is, have they moved enough reforms in the, in the VA, do you think? Uh He's doing a good job. We've got a lot more work to continue to do. Um, you know, our, our VA, uh, Veterans Administration, does some things very, very good, uh, but it's such a huge bureaucracy, there's some things that have fallen through the cracks. Um, I would say the biggest glaring uh, challenge or even insult to our men and women that, that have worn the uniform uh, is those secret waiting lists. Those Look, if you've served our country, there should be no list. You should never have to wait for care. And as a veteran, veterans want to be served by other veterans. Uh, We want to be able to go into the local veterans clinic. We want to be able to go into the veterans hospital. But ultimately, if you're having to wait in line or can't get uh, your your, uh, rating, your disability rating quick enough, then you ought to be able to go to the doctor of your choice. So we pass the choice card, which will allow us to do that. We also need to improve care in our our, uh, hospitals across the country. And, um, you know, in our community, uh, it is a very, very long drive for um, our veterans, uh, often taking them more than 24 hours and having to get a, a hotel room if they're going to go to the veterans hospital down in the Bay Area, which is far from our district. We've got one of the largest veterans populations and the next VA hospital to be built. The difference is the mistakes that have been made in the past, the big overruns that we saw in Denver and elsewhere, um, aren't going to happen here because we are working with the Army Corps of Engineers. It would be the first time that they take on a project versus the VA. Mm-hmm. And we're going to stay on top of them and make sure it's a, a world-class uh, care uh, and a world-class hospital. But back to your first point, the best thing you can do for a veteran is hire a veteran. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're seeing more and more companies step up. And we're also making it easier as a country to hire veterans. Um, one of the first things that I took on when I came into office was making sure that uh, not only could our veterans uh, 
before they would uh, um, get discharged, uh, actually be able to do a resume and start uh, doing a job search, but that you'd actually have employers able to research those career fields and uh, recruit those people before they come out mm -hmm. as well. Um, we've now got the J Veterans Jobs Caucus, uh, which is uh, myself and Tim Walls, a Republican and Democrat in the House, as well as uh, uh, our colleagues in the Senate. Um, we make sure that uh, we're working together with companies around the country so that we can continue to grow this. Yeah, on the private sector, you know, hiring veterans, I know there are a lot of pro programs, a lot of companies have programs. The Chamber of Commerce has a program for that. Are you seeing that on the upswing, Is it, or would you like to see a lot more out of the private sector? Uh, where's the trend there? Uh, it's on an upswing, but I'd obviously like to see a lot more. Um, but the military is changing the way that they do business as well. Um, you know, I uh, authored the Veteran Skills to Jobs Act. Um, I very strongly believe that uh, you ought to be able to market the skills that you uh, gained uh, while on active duty. If you're a doctor on active duty, uh, you ought to be able to have um, the, the doctor or nurse uh, coming out or a truck driver. Or uh, in in my case, when I was in the, in the Air Force, I was a crew chief on airplanes. When I thought that I was uh, getting out and going back to college, um, I thought it was going to be very easy to pay for college because I can be able to get a job at any airport. If I've worked on the biggest, uh, <laughs> most sophisticated airplanes in the world, how easy would it be to get a job sure. at your local airport? Uh, but I very quickly realized it was going to take me three years of new training to train on stuff that I'd already been trained on for the last ah. six years. So um, we have changed the, the way the military looks at that. They originally... Um, thought that that was going to affect their recruiting in a negative way, and I think they're starting to realize um, it is a way to uh, to increase recruitment because you're gaining a skill that now you'll be able to use yeah, right. on the outside, which then allows all of those companies to market to those skills as well. So it increases morale, it increases recruitment, um, and it, it's now in increasing retention as well. We're seeing more and more people come into the military and want to stay uh, but certainly have the ability to get a job when they come out. Mm -hmm. And we've got to stop the homeless epidemic with so many veterans mm -hmm. that have gone homeless. So um, the biggest part of that, I think, is helping to, to find a job. There may be some mental health issues that have to be addressed along the way as well. But and initially, um, you don't end up in those difficult situations if you're coming out with a job immediately. Sure. So when I first came and worked in the House of Representatives, um, my, my boss was a guy named Bob Michael, and Bob was a, uh, the minority leader of the House. He was also a veteran who was wounded at the Battle of the Bulge. And it, during his era, he had all kinds of members that he served with that were Republican or Democrat, but they were veterans of the Second World War and then Korea and then uh, Vietnam. And then for a while, you didn't have that as many veterans, but it seems these days veterans are – getting elected and playing an active role in Congress, yeah. which, which I think is a very positive development. It's, I think, you know, the military is probably one of our most respected institutions and probably the most respected institution in the world today. I would like to see Congress to get respected again along those lines. And I think yeah. it takes veterans who seem to have they, – they take it very seriously. They take the, the, the governing seriously because they know the ramifications. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, the, the most damaging thing for our military is the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And so when you end up with these short-term funding bills, yeah. um, when you're worried about uh, you're over fighting overseas uh, or stationed a abroad away from your family and you're worried about whether or not your family's going to get a paycheck, um, it, is, it is something that is, is very concerning. So you see more veterans uh, willing to step up and, and run for office and serve. 
And, and now I, I'd even say you're seeing it on both sides of the aisle. That's right, one yeah. of the one of the things that uh, is a trend this cycle is you're seeing a lot of stories come out where Democrat veterans are running as well, and I, I think it's great. Uh, we ought to have more veterans of both parties coming out um, and saying how important it is not only to serve your country but to serve your country in this way as well. Um, and and really show the importance of budgets and funding the military and living up to uh, you know that oath that, that you take when you get sworn in. Well, I'm happy that we're going to have a big plus up in the budget in the in the military. I'm not so happy about some of the domestic stuff, but that's a price of admission. I think you get the Democrats to vote for it. That's the way it goes. Um, but I'm glad to see this finally getting over with. Hopefully, we can get this bill passed and, and moved on uh thank you so much yeah but I, I would say that the additions that we put into this bill were, were important additions uh, as well i mean obviously mm-hmm. the focus is is on uh, the military spending um we're at an all-time low we've got you know training we we lost more um had more casualties last year in training accidents mm-hmm. than we did at war i mean that should yeah. we should never have the, those high training accident numbers we've got to be able to fix uh, not only the equipment, but make sure that uh, we're getting the training there as well. But we've put into this bill as well. Uh, we've had hurricanes this year. We've had right. fires in California. Absolutely. That's part of it. NIH funding and the opioid crisis, those were important things that we wanted to address this year. So we did put some other things in here on top of military spending that were very important to both sides of the aisle. And I just make a quick observation that we're still dealing with the Obama Budgets, the Obama sequester when it came to defense spending. So this is really important that we get this yes. thing passed. Don't you yeah. think? The last no, I, I mean, just I, I really like what you said about um, governing, really what I call governing by CR, you know, these uh, temporary funding increases. It's just killing our way of governing. And yeah. I, I don't know if you see, yes, that's here to stay for a while because of uh, the polarization of our, of our politics, particularly back home. Or if you think that we can get out of this rut and begin to do things in a little more regular order. I mean, what's your what's your, what's your I sense? think we have to get out of the rut. I mean, from a House perspective, uh, I was very proud of the fact that we passed 12 appropriations no. bills. I mean, we've passed a lot of bills that the Ameri- American public is not aware of because they've sat in the Senate. Right. Um, so we are dealing with a lot of those uh, coming back in a bill like we, we're going to see today. Um, this will take us through the end of the year, which is something we need. Also addresses the debt ceiling uh, so that we're not dealing with that later in the year. But we've got to get to an annual budget um, that forecasts a year out so that, you know, military can do the proper spending and proper preparement um, for for the future. So, Congressman, um, I want to thank you for your service uh, as Congress. It's a long trip back and forth to California, and I know it's hard on the family. And, you know, you're getting a lot of crap when you go back home. Because that's all part of the deal, and the social media is a nightmare. Uh, I participate in some of it, but you know, that's I, I never see negative things about people unless I, you don't know, have to. Uh, but I thank you for your service. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do one last thing. We have a call, what we call the lightning round. I'm going to have John Easton go first. What are you buying or selling today, John Easton? I am buying uh, rockets. <laughs> okay. I'm buying rockets. Uh, the the rocket launch that occurred Tuesday, I believe. Adam, is that right? Tuesday? Yes, SpaceX. <laughs> the SpaceX rocket, which is the most powerful rocket uh, known in the world today, maybe almost ever since the initial moon launch, um, was a sight to behold and also had the cool factor. Elon Musk put some cool into this launch, uh, into these rockets. This is, a, this is a private Elon Musk and SpaceX and with NASA. 
venture that uh, sent this this thing up into into space and the and the boosters came back down and landed on a launch pad that was cool that was cool yeah so i'm buying some cool today i'm buying the rockets all right congressman you're next what are you buying or selling today uh, I'm buying water storage because I think this uh, I think this infrastructure package is going through, and Excellent. it is something that uh, I guess the cool factor in that would be uh, you're going to have a lot more recreation in California. You come visit us, and uh, you can water ski and uh, everything else on our lakes. But we've got to have the water storage for our economy, for our agriculture industry, and we've got the opportunity to get done right now in this infrastructure. And package. I have water skied on Mount Shasta, just so we're all clear, <laughs> and that is an awesome lake. All right, I'm buying and selling. I'm going to buy the St. Peter's auction. Uh, Jessica McFall and my, my kids go to the same school. I am in charge of corporate donations to the St. Peter's school for their 150th anniversary auction. I am really excited about this. I want you, if you have any extra cash, if you're in favor of Catholic education, we need the money because we don't have a gym. And our building is literally from 150 years ago. So... Buy the St. Peter's auction. Feel the arm twist. Feel the arm twist. <laughs> and that's what I buy today. <laughs> Congressman, we are so pleased to have you on, on board today uh, so much. You're, you're doing such great work uh, in Congress. I've always, I've long admired your work because you're someone who can talk to Democrats and get them on board on stuff. And I think a fairly difficult district. Um, but you do a great job, and you're also a voice of reason in you know a city that needs reason. So thank you for joining us on the thank you. Fear Thanks Theory Podcast. Me. Thank you very much. And EFB, excellent for business. John Easton, you the man. Yes, thank you very much, <laughs> everyone, for joining.